Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Annie Pfeiffer, author of To the Collector Belong the Spoils, Modernism and the Art of Appropriation, published by Cornell University Press in February 2023. To the Collector Belong the Spoils rethinks collecting as an artistic, revolutionary, and appropriative modernist practice, which flourishes beyond institutions like museums or archives. Through a constellation of three author collectors, and Annie Pfeiffer examines the relationship between literary modernism and 20th century practices of collecting objects. From Henry James's paper hoarding to Carl Einstein's mania for African art and Walter Benjamin's obsession with old Russian toys, she shows how these authors' literary techniques of compiling, gleaning, and reassembling constitute a modernist style of collecting that reimagines the relationship between author and text, source, and medium. Annie Pfeiffer is assistant professor in the Department of Germanic Languages at Columbia University. Her research and teaching interests focus on 19th and 20th century Germanic literature and culture, literary and political theory, the Frankfurt School, aesthetics, visual material culture, and most recently, the intersection of modernism and fascism. Annie, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah. And before we get started talking about your book, could you share a little bit about yourself with listeners, uh, where you grew up and went to school, and how you started thinking and writing about collecting as a practice? Yeah. So I um, grew up between the sort of unlikely places of Switzerland and Columbia, Missouri. Um, So uh, sort of going back and forth, my parents were Swiss, um, and I moved around a lot growing up. I lived in Israel, Germany, Switzerland, and the U.S. before I was six years old. Um, And looking back, I sometimes wonder if this was sort of like the early uh, experience with movement and immigration that in some way also connects to my larger interest in collecting. Um, So many of the collectors I talk about are either exiles, in the case of Walter Benjamin and Carl Einstein, or uh, immigrants in some way, like Henry James, who leaves behind his U.S. his native U.S. to go uh, live abroad in Europe, um, and so I think that might be somehow maybe biographically connected. Um, but you know, I grew up like so many kids collecting all sorts of objects, like shells, souvenirs, stickers. I had a big sticker collection that I was very proud of, um, and. Uh, you know, I was thinking a lot about this when I read Berlin Childhood, uh, Walter Benjamin's kind of memoir about his childhood in Berlin. And he talks about how collecting is kind of the first way children get to know the world around them. Um, so they collect objects and that's how they learn about, you know, uh, trees or rocks or, you know, insects or whatever it is that's in the world around them. So this is kind of a very natural part of childhood. And Benjamin himself talks a lot about his sort of early collection in Berlin childhood. Um, And then as I grew up, I think I started collecting, thought of myself as a more nuanced collector. I remember I went to um, Tokyo in 2012 and became obsessed with their replica foods. They have these amazing little um, kind of representations, like they're perfect and like really beautiful. Um, All this sort of fake food. They have a whole district in Tokyo that makes these like, items that are mostly, I think, bought by by um, restaurants to sh- kind of ex- 
exhibit in their display cabinets. But I started collecting them, which was like a hard habit because I wasn't anywhere close to Japan for most of, you know, my life. Um, so every time anybody would go to Japan, I was like, oh, you have to stop by this, you know, replica food district and bring me back something. Um, and then, of course, they ended up be- being on Etsy. So that was good. But, you know, <laughs> um, so that was one thing I sort of collected in my adulthood. But I think one sort of takeaway after writing this book that I realized is actually I'm, I might be more of a hoarder than a collector. Um, unfortunately, uh, I collect, I sort of collect a lot of documents. I have way too many files everywhere. I'm a digital hoarder. I'm a tab hoarder, um, which is, you know, I have no fewer than 70 tabs open on my screen right now. Actually, it's really, it's really bad. Um, Yeah, but you know, I think so I'm somewhere between collecting and hoarding. But I think that the book was also helpful and, and kind of allowing me to think about what the differences are as it relates to my own kind of habits. That's amazing. That's yeah. Um, childhood collecting leading to something like a fruitful um, research project. I love it. Um, so turning to this book, uh, to the collector belong the spoils. Could you talk about what some of your main goals were in writing the book and what some of the big questions were that you hoped you could engage with in this work? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think my sort of main idea in the book was to think about how collecting could be creative and artistic, um, and more than just sort of a taxonomy or form of organization that you see in, you know, kind of established ideas of collecting like in museums or archives. Um, so I, I wanted to think about collecting as a kind of creative exercise that was also linked to um, the work writers were doing. Um, so uh, the sort of relationship between writing and collecting. Um, so all of the three um, authors that I focus on are also collectors. And each of the sections sort of combines their um their writing style with the way that collecting kind of informs the way they think about writing. Um, So they're kind of self-reinforcing. So somebody like, um, uh, you know, Walter Benjamin will be a kind of collector of books, but then at the same time, he collects quotations in his work, right? Um, You know, his sort of magnum opus that is probably lost in its kind of ultimate form, the Arcades Project, is basically a collection of quotations from um, the Bibliothèque Nationale, which he sort of collected um, while he was in exile in Paris after he fled the Nazis. in Germany. And um, so there you really see the way that um, somebody's sort of physical form of collecting is then uh, related to the work they do as authors. Um, so I wanted to think about collect authors as collectors, but also collectors as authors. Um, and one of the kind of, I think one of my favorite parts of writing this book is just the sort of vast amount of eccentric collectors that I kind of stumbled across. Um, Collecting seems to be a habit uh, carried on by many really interesting people um, who themselves have a real passion for what it is they do. Um, So one of my favorite examples of a collector was this um, French nobleman who uh, 
sort of wanted to collect all the croissants in the world um, from every pastry shop he could ever, you know, find and built like a refrigerated room beneath his house to store all these croissants. And he wanted to like bequeath it to the Louvre after his death. But of course, the Louvre wasn't interested in his croissant collection. So I don't know what happened, but it was probably destroyed or and whatever. But I guess it just is so... Um, yeah, it's such a, in some ways, tied to what people are passionate about. Um, and so I think sometimes the collector has a kind of even authorial function. Um, he or she kind of creates a kind of narrative um, through the objects um, that, they cr- that, they, that they collect. So this is kind of the world that they create around them through their collections. Um, so that's kind of one, one thing I wanted to sort of highlight in my book. Um, so not just collecting as a kind of antiquarian practice that, you know, is old and musty. I start off with Nietzsche's quote about <laughs> the moldy. He has this great quote about the moldy collector who smells as old as his the stuff that he collects. Um, so I, you know, I want to think about the, the collector as a kind of artistic um, even revolutionary figure who um, is closely tied to the production of art. Totally. Yeah. Um, and that makes me think also of like a lot of the kind of nostalgia that is often ascribed to collecting and then thinking instead about these like productive, generative um, things that come from collecting. Um, That's right. The temporality of collecting is really interesting because it is um, often seen as sort of backward looking or reactionary even. Um, But I think there is a real sort of forward thinking. I mean, that's why Benjamin collects, uh, connects the collector to a kind of revolutionary figure. He says that the, the collector dreams of a future that could be better than, than the, the way things are at this moment. So there is a, that kind of aspect of collecting that I think is probably not as commonly associated with it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, one other um, theme, idea, maybe is a better word that I want to highlight uh, before we talk about the different sections of the book is um, the concept of spoils, which you first mentioned in the title. And you explain in the introduction that this book establishes a genealogy of collecting in spoliation. So could you explain to listeners how you understand and use spoils and what the ramifications are of recognizing the role of spoils in modernist collecting practices? uh, And how is this a really important lens for looking at collecting? Mm -hmm. So yeah, spoils, you know, is typically thought of as sort of goods or property that are seized by force, um, often in a time of war, conflict or conquest. Um, so this would be the kind of, you know, uh, grave robbing or looting of, you know, libraries or artifacts that has been part of, you know, cultural conflict since uh, even before the Roman Empire, right? Um, so Part of what I'm trying to do is situate collecting in this kind of larger dynamic um, of uh, 
spoliation um, that has always been part of sort of history. And this, of course, I think of as the destructive angle of collecting, right? So before I talked about the creative angle, um, but I think there's also a a very destructive angle of collecting uh, that unsettles, that takes things out of context, that appropriates um, often by force what is not theirs, right? Um, And so I think this is very much the reality of so many of the museum collections that we we know of today, right? Um, uh, Some of the sort of crowning collections in the Louvre, the Met, and other museums were partly um, extracted through uh, colonization and and war and encounters um, where there was unequal power dynamics and and involved the seizing of cultural property. Um, And I think you can actually see this sort of very uh, poignantly highlighted in debates today about art restitution, right? So you hear um, almost every day, I feel like, or every other day I open um, the news and I see another article about, you know, the uh, sort of the restitution of artworks back to, um, you know, um, Nigeria, sort of in the case of the Benin Bronzes, or uh, the, the return of these artifacts uh, to places that... Um, were uh, that, that they were originally taken from. Uh, this is also the case with Nazi uh, looted art, right? That was taken by force um, from Jewish collectors and then sold very cheaply in art markets. Um, and still today, you you know, you see cases in Switzerland. There's a case going on right now where um, they discover that a, a sort of important collection was uh, in part uh, a forced sale from a sort of Jewish collector. And so part of what they're doing now is trying to establish the provenance of these works um, uh, to return them to, you know, the descendants of, of the people they were taken from. Um, and so I think that this is very much also part of the process of collecting Um so I, I guess I would say, especially in this idea of appropriation, that just because we're sort of looking at it as a creative um, and sort of dynamic process doesn't mean we have we can gloss over the kind of political and ethical ramifications of collecting, um, which I think are sometimes lost when we think about, you know, especially when we go into these museums and we see these amazing collections and then realize, you know, so much of them were uh, were not their own cultural property. Wait, right? Who do these who do these objects actually belong to? Um, so I think this is part of, and there's a real cultural reckoning going on right now. I think where a lot of museums are taking um, responsibility for the kind of origins of their collections. Yeah, it's like it's interesting to reconcile those, um, you know, the destructive aspects and then these like generative revolutionary aspects and, um, yeah, it's right. it's all of these things exactly. So I use this kind of uh, uh, nerdy term, dialectical, uh, to kind of think about it as both kind of revolutionary and. Um, creative, but at the same time, kind of also reactionary and destructive. And all of the author collectors I look at are sort of torn between these two poles um, of looking at, you know, in the case of Henry James, uh, he was really one of the first to, I think, recognize the way collecting can also be a sort of very problematic and destructive force um, in 
in his own work. Um, and so, and then, you know, going to uh, someone like Carl Einstein, who was very interested in um, the study of African art and used the objects that he collected to basically um, write his very famous, one of the earliest treatises on African art, uh, taking it very seriously as a sort of artistic discipline. Um, so I think that 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 those that sort of complicated relationship is very much part of every one of these author collectors' experience. Yeah, and let's let's talk more about Henry James. Um, this book has three major sections, each one focused on an individual, and, and the first section is is Henry James. Um, so, how do you see collecting and collections as a preoccupation for James, and how does this come through in his writing? Uh, and then building on that. What does this specific lens of collector for James bring to our broader understanding of his work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Henry James is sort of, in some ways, a little bit of a an odd the odd man out because he's not German, he's not Jewish, um, he's you know Anglo, he's from the Anglo American context. Um, but I think he's really important to my book. And every time I tried when I was writing it to think about how writing it without James, I sort of thought, oh, I can't write it without James, right? Um, because James um, gives me the sort of whole vocabulary of spoilage. Um, he, you know, he has one of his sort of books. Um, well, almost every single book that he writes has <laughs> is about a collector, specifically a kind of American style collector who goes to Europe armed with, you know, all the money that sort of his wealth and industry has given him um, and tries to buy up, you know, the sort of major European artworks Um and uh, and so so many of his books stage that dynamic of the kind of the, the American collecting European culture in an attempt to kind of create a kind of you know um, cultural heritage. Um, and he also, I think, more than the other two, which is surprising because in some ways he comes before and he's kind of often thought as this very sort of buttoned up. You know, I mean. Yes, he is, you know, working towards modernism and something like his later work, like the Golden Bull, could be thought of as modernist. I think he's still very much on the threshold between sort of realism and modernism um, as a genre or as a kind of historical um movement, but I think what he really is conscious of more than the others is the sort of um the destructive elements of appropriation and collecting. And so famously when asked whether he was a collector, he says, no, like I, I'm not a collector. Uh, I fear objects who possess me. Right. So um, in that kind of, I, I think was very cognizant of the way that um, people become possessed by uh, their possessions, right? Uh, that the way that material culture starts to exhibit a kind of control over the collector, and you see this often happen so often with you know these passionate collectors who become more and more, in some ways, uh, the pawn of their collections, and uh, become you know there's a real kind of um, shift and dynamics where the collection starts to take over the life of the collector. Um, and then you sort of ask, well, who's, who's really the object and who's the, the, the agent here. Right. Um, and I think Henry James was keenly aware of that dynamic. Um, 
But I actually argue in my book that Henry James, unlike the others, is more of a hoarder um, and <laughs> close to my heart, of course, <laughs> um, because he really is in some ways um, obsessed with collecting and hoarding his own texts. He's always rewriting texts. He's curating them. He, you know, obsessively re uh, sort of reissues these um these novels and novellas that he's written before um, sort of makes minor changes and then and publishes them again. Um, and then sort of tragically towards the end of his life, built a huge bonfire of all of his unwritten works and letters and burnt everything to the ground. Um, and I think a final attempt to kind of control his estate. Of course, I think Henry James is also concerned with the kind of the way objects or texts um, would be used against him. He was worried about compromising biographical material. There's all sorts of you know, speculation on his sexuality, which might have been part of the reason that he was concerned about their circulation. But in any case, I think um, James kind of embodies um, this kind of hoarding tendency to want to control, to want to hold on to, um, rather than the collector who kind of wants to show their work to the world, right? Um, and Orhan Pamuk makes this great distinction in the Museum of Innocence where he says collectors are proud, they want to exhibit. Um, hoarders are sh ashamed, they want to uh, sort of keep to themselves, right? They want to keep things uh, close to themselves um, and not sort of circulating in the public. And I, I know it's a bit more complicated than that, but I think it helps to sort of think about the different affect that underpins both of these um, these phenomena, right? That collectors are these kind of, um, it's often linked to power and prestige, right? What you collect is important. Everybody else wants to see it too, right? Um, versus hoarding, which is often sort of private, idiosyncratic. It's not something that anybody else understands. So when you, you know, walk into a hoarder's house, um, you might not understand the organization, right? It seems like a kind of organized, chaotic mess. Now, a hoarder will tell you, actually, there's a very sort of its own law, it has its own logic, right? They'll know exactly what receipt is in what pile, right? And it's almost kind of like a system of organization. Um, but it's not one that's legible externally, um, or sort of uh, accessible to the public in the same way versus a collection, which is something that everybody can kind of understand, right? That has a kind of ordering principle um, that's governed by a kind of um, larger schema, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to think about those different like power dynamics um, and how James is so cognizant of that. Exactly. I mean, I think too, I mean, so much of what we think of as hoarding is sort of it's also a value judgment, right? Um, though the things that are, I mean, even sort of the psychological definition um, put forth by Randy Frost um, in his sort of one of the first books that takes, treats hoarding as a kind of psychological um, issue, he says, hoarders hold on to objects that have limited uh, use value or are useless, right? Um, so there's a kind of value judgment there that hoarders are those who hold on to objects that aren't useless or that aren't useful versus collectors who 
have or operate under the assumption that there is a kind of use value to the objects that they have. Um, yeah, there's a, a section in one of these chapters on James that I flagged with a post-it and I keep being like, what, what is that page of the book? And I reopen it and it's the, the heading, a brief history of horticulture. And it just makes me laugh every time. <laughs> um, but the kind of the background that you gave on hoarding and society's understandings of hoarding is like really, really fascinating there. Yeah. And there's a great book that I um, have thought about a lot called um, by Rebecca Falcoff that was um, published just two years earlier on hoarding. Um, it's called Possessed. And it also kind of gives the kind of cultural backdrop, uh, the, the sort of history of hoarding um, as a kind of phenomenon um, that underpins so much of our relationship with with material culture, right? Um, and it's probably the less known, right? We all know the history of, of these collections, right? And how they're, you know, how museums came to be. But what we know less about is sort of the hoarders, right? That kind of <laughs> a retreat and uh, and and keep their their um, their objects close to them um, and are sort of outside of the public eye. Um, so I think this is something I th I've thought a lot about, um, especially sort of, I think, more recently. And I think the, the kind of recent interest in hoarding to me is very interesting, right? Um, what is it about hoarding that is a kind of, it's almost like the... Um, the malady of our time, right? If you look at shows like Hoarders or all this obsession with decluttering, right? The Marie Kondo style uh, advice on how to get rid of things. Well, I think it's sort of the perfect storm of, you know, a kind of consumer capitalism that encourages buy and buy, but at the same time, this kind of anxiety about how many objects do we have, especially as so much of our lives move online, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like hoarding is the weird reality TV cousin of Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, then thinking about like intentional collecting, we can move on to the next section of the book where you talk about uh, Walter Benjamin's writing and, and practice. And you focused a lot on some of his collecting work that escapes a, a lot of scholarly attention. So could you share with listeners what, Benjamin's collecting practices look like and how they provide us with an act of autobiography or self-portraiture um, that we can relate to the rest of his work? That's a great question. I really like that idea of uh, the sort of self-portrait through the objects we collect, which is in some way, I think, um, certainly a way that Benjamin would have understood his own life and biography. Um, as I think I already mentioned, he was a sort of avid collector from childhood. Um, and actually the book, my book grew out of this kind of um, presentation I did in graduate school where we read the Moscow Diary, um, which was his account of his trip to the Soviet Union in 1926-27, when he was sort of going to kind of suss things out to see if, you know, communism or socialism was for him, was, was a movement that he was interested in. He was sort of connecting with all these um, sort of, uh, you know, 
intellectual, the Soviet intellectuals trying to form bonds with especially the kind of the theater and um, a lot of the sort of exciting art movements that were happening at the time. But what he actually does throughout the whole thing is he goes into all these stores and he keeps buying old Russian toys. And it's, it's really funny to me because it's this kind of jarring moment here. You know, you have, uh, you know, Soviet society collectivizing, trying to shed all of its possessions, while Benjamin him sort of is buying up all these little souvenirs and these toys. And at one point, he kind of <laughs> he, he he's especially interested in Russian toys and these old Russian toys that to him are kind of a pre-industrial um, toy before it kind of you know was mechanized in factories um, and in mass production. Um, and I think for him, it's this almost this kind of, um, and again, thinking about the kind of dialectic of collecting, it's kind of this sort of weirdly reactionary kind of impulse um, that happens just as he's um, trying to form bonds with, you know, the Soviet intelligentsia. And I think of it as almost a kind of uh, psychological um, kind of retreat, right? It's a a moment where he's trying to come to terms with this new world that he's seeing and he's buying up all these objects, right? As almost a way of anchoring himself in this kind of, you know, in in the Moscow diaries full of these descriptions of Moscow as this kind of centralist city that he can't understand, that he will, you know, he'll never learn the Russian language. He'll never be part of this society. Um, And so I think the toys that he collects are in some way a kind of miniature form of trying to um, come to terms terms with this new environment. And that's so much of what I think of as collecting. And and it's often linked to questions of travel and exile. And you see this much later as well um, in the 30s when he leaves Berlin for the last time um, once the Nazis take over um, and he moves uh, to Paris, but, you know, spends time all over Europe before tragically trying to emigrate to the U.S. and it's sort of cut um, cut off from the exit visa and unable to make it to uh, to the United States um, and takes his own life. Um, but throughout this whole time, you know, he's very itinerant um, and you, you know, he, but he's constantly sort of buying and thinking about objects along the way. And it's almost a way of kind of um, forming a connection. Um, and you mentioned also, I think the, the concept of nostalgia, I think some of, Benjamin's collections are nostalgic, right? They're nostalgic for another time, another era where things were different, right? Um, uh, and especially the the toys that he collects in Moscow, I think, are very much a kind of almost a sort of a model of a kind of utopic childhood, right? Before factories and, um, uh, you know, mass production changed the way we think about toys. He talks about a toy, the, the kind of ideal wooden toy as being something that a child can understand um, how it's created, right? Um, and so I think um, for him, it's a kind of way of coming to terms with his sort of 
exile, right? The way that he um, comes to terms with his own environment. But I also think it's more than just that. I think it's collect connected to his artistic practice. Um, and especially in, in the Arcades Project and later works, he really latches on to the collector as a kind of um, rag picker or gleaner, which is somebody who lives on the margins of society, who kind of picks up what others throw away, right? Um, and he has this wonderful kind of section in the Arcades Project about the the kind of the rag picker who by night gathers up the refuse that the great city throws out. Um, and by sort of scavenging at the margins, and you can see, I think the Arcades Project is in some way a kind of, you know, what he's doing is he's scavenging as he's sitting in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris in exile. He's going through all the books that are there, right? Partly also he himself had to get rid of all of his books, right? Because, um, you know, how many books can you have if you're moving from place to place all the time? But he's sort of ransacking, he I think even uses the word ransacking the libraries, Um by writing down these quotes and taking them out of their context. Um, so there again, I think the idea of ransacking a library, of course, you know, it, it, it's, it's a bit troubling because it sort of brings back all these kind of ideas of, you know, destructive acts. But I think it is in some ways created, uh, linked to Benjamin's larger kind of artistic project, which was, wasn't just collecting to remember, but collecting to think or rethink, to reimagine, to sort of take things out of their context, right? And he uses this idea of a kind of creative form of appropriation as part of his um, artistic practice. And, I, you know, uh, he says, uh, quotations in my work are like robbers that try to, <laughs> you know, uh, take what's not theirs. Um, so I think he also has built into his, um, his idea of collecting a kind of destructive, both creative and destructive principle um, that is probably very much, you know, a re- sort of re- reflection of the kind of, you know, these, these two aspects of of this dialectic of collecting right um the all your writing about the russian toys was really fascinating to me and i wonder actually to kind of go on a methodological tangent you mentioned that that is an aspect of his life that generally does not get looked at by scholars and there's not a lot of evidence left of the toys. Um, we don't even have photos of all the toys he collected. What what did you have to do to find the traces that do exist of that collecting work that he did? Where where could you find it? Yeah, I mean, you know, all, all the toys are gone. We couldn't find any of them. I had a wonderful research assistant undergrad who helped me track down the photos in the Akademie der Künste, um, which is where much of Benjamin's archive is. And they had this sort of the last remaining black and white photographs, which I included several of them in the, um, in the book. Um, but it was really tough. And I think there's, you know, I mean, the same goes for, for, for Carl Einstein's collection of, of African art. I mean, none of it is still extant. Um, and so you're kind of working with material that's not there that only, has survived in very sort of truncated um, ways. Um, and I think what's what's interesting about 
Benjamin's toy collection is he from the from the outset wanted to photograph his toys, right? He was cognizant. And I mean, Benjamin as a media and sort of art theorist was always very interested in photography, right? Photography as a means to exploring the kind of unconscious of of modern life, right? Um, so from the beginning, Benjamin insisted that these these um, these objects would be photographed, which in my mind is interesting because it sort of raises the question, well, was there a kind of almost a kind of ethnographic intention there with, with his collection, right? Was he collecting these toys for himself or was he collecting them to be sort of photographed almost with the kind of knowledge that maybe this would be the way that people would um, be able to access them, right? That they would be only transmitted in a kind of pho- photographic medium rather than, you know, as objects, right? Um, and so much of, of Benjamin's work in general has to do with, you know, what happens when, you know, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction is all about what happens when technology starts to overtake, you know, material culture and in, in forms of reproduction, right? What happens when suddenly you can make a thousand copies of, you know, something that used to, there only used to be one of. Right. Um, And so, you know, I think um, what Benjamin is also really interested in is at the same time, the kind of aura of an object, right, the 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 object. But what I think of his work on aura in relation to collecting is almost a kind of look back. So he thinks of aura of an object as the object looking back at us, right? That there, there's almost a kind of life in the object. So he says, and again, he connects this to childhood. He says the kids, kids are the first people who believe that their objects have a kind of life outside of us, right? That, uh, that have the ability to kind of, um, return the gaze um, and and um, interact with us. And I think in some ways, real collectors do think that there's a kind of life in their objects, right? Um, there's almost a kind of magical uh, affinity there that I think Benjamin really captures. Hmm. Um, well, then, long-winded. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's so interesting. And I think it's important to like talk about and think about and share these experiences of um, how we do research with things that are not entirely there and, and what remains like parts of the aura remain. And that is what we can, we can work with. Right. Um, Right. And it's so different too. I mean, you know, so much of this book was written when everything was shut down during COVID. Right. So I had to actually cut short a research trip. I was going to have to go to Berlin to look at, you know, the arcades project because I really wanted to see it in its actual form. Right. It's in some ways a, a, it's been digitized and I think it's, it's been called the sort of first postmodern digital text, right? Because it kind of imagines text in a different way, not being kind of linear or read, you know, from page to page, but instead a kind of hyperlink, right? So thinking about the different passages, uh, sort of connecting themes and topics, but not through the, the, the sort of linear, um, trajectory of the book, but through other connections, right? And I think that's very much the way we think of, of reading and media today, right? Not as a kind of linear narrative, but as as different kinds of, of connections, nodal connections between objects. Um, but I really wanted to see it. And, and I couldn't. Yeah. And I feel oh, like so I, hard. 
Yeah. I mean, so I had to write it without seeing the actual arcades. I feel like I missed out on the aura of the arcades. Well, I hope you get there eventually. I do too. Um, let's move to the third major section of this book where you examine uh, Carl Einstein. And um, so I guess how does Einstein's theory of collecting show us an intersection of collector and artist? And how does his personal collecting help us understand his intellectual trajectory? Yeah, so I, I maybe I should just start by saying, because I don't think Carl Einstein's quite a household name. Um, so he's also a kind of, um, I mean, similar, I do always wonder if he met Walter Benjamin, because I think they both lived in, um, you know, in Germany, were a, a German, Jewish um writers operated in sort of avant-garde circles and then later moved to Paris um, when uh, the Nazis took over um, and were both connected to the kind of surrealists in Paris in the 30s. And then tragically, both even took their lives in the same year of 1940, almost um, months within each other, also in very close to um, Benjamin on the border of, of France and Spain and Einstein in the south of France, um, both also, you know, connected to sort of political revolutionary movements, um, but there's no trace that they ever knew each other. So that's kind of my question is, did they ever meet? Did they know, did they know of each other? Because I can't imagine the world of, um, that they were operating that big. Um, anyway, so yes, Carl Einstein, um, is a kind of art collector, um, but he starts out as a, an expressionist writer um, and is one of the first to really start collecting African art um, seriously. And he writes this text in 1917 um, that basically is the first art historical text to treat African art as art, right? Before it had been kind of labeled as anthropology. Um, and uh, he's very much at the forefront of the movements in, in Berlin in the early 20th century, which was all about um, how do we classify objects, right? So I think um, around this time that these these all three uh, of these writers are, are working in is a kind of anxiety around classification, right? How, where do objects belong? We have the establishment of institutions like museums that really have their heyday already in the 19th century. Um, but I think the question of the 20th century is, are these categorizations, are these ways of storing and archiving these materials? Um, Correct, right? Um, and so we have a lot of sort of disciplinary disputes. We have what's called in Berlin the museum wars, <laughs> where uh, museums were actively both competing with each other to have, you know, uh, collections, the big collections, but also um, sort of in dispute around where do these objects belong? Do they belong in an art history museum? Do they belong in a uh, anthropology museum? Do they belong uh, in a, you know, in a different kind of a natural history museum, right? So it's interesting also to think about the growth of museums and the way that museums themselves kind of produce certain disciplines, right, of study. Um, but Carl Einstein says, no, these African art objects are amazing. They're beautiful and they deserve to be treated um, as, uh, as the best of European art, right? Which in 1917 was a pretty radical move. Um, but what is also, I think, 
has to be said that Carl Einstein, of all three collectors, was the closest to empire. He, um, during World War I, was stationed um, in Brussels in the colonial office, um, where he saw firsthand, um, I mean, not much is, not, there's not much information still about his time in the Belgian uh, colonial office, so we don't know, but we do have letters that he wrote while he was stationed there, where he talks about sort of, he writes excessive Africa, like look at all the art, uh, look at all the objects coming in uh, into Europe, right, from Africa and gets really carried away um, and starts to, you know, collect all things African. Um, and there is a real sort of obvious problem to the way that he collects, right, and the way that it's bound up with empire, especially, you know, the kind of widespread, large scale transfer of, of cultural property, um, from from Africa, uh, African countries to to Europe, and going directly into the museums, right? Um, I mean, the Benin bronzes, which are sort of the most important um, works, and you hear quite a bit of discussion about them today because so many of them are sort of being returned. Um, came directly out of a British raid uh, on the Benin on the kingdom of Benin. And then those objects were basically directly, it was almost like they were taken from Benin, transported back to Europe, and immediately they were sold on the art market, right? Um, and uh, the Ethnographic Museum in Berlin still has a huge collection. Um, and so many of the uh, works that Einstein um that Einstein references in his book are from the Benin bronzes are from this particular kingdom. Um, and so I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, the sort of the ethics of his collecting practices uh, while at the same time, he was, you know, one of the biggest advocates of African art, right? He was the one who made it um, into a kind of art historical discipline. Um and then later, as he sort of becomes more and more famous and more and more connected, especially to uh, Georges Bataille and the Surrealists, he starts to be basically kind of move almost away from literature itself into uh, the art historical realm. And then um, I think one thing I'm kind of trying to do in the last chapter is sort of think about the way that collecting um is often thought about as a sort of object-based practice. But in reality, I think um, Carl Einstein keeps coming back to the the form of collecting as a, as a practice of writing, right? That it's always partly based in narrative and narration. Um, so Carl Einstein himself sort of is often thought of as kind of dis disparaging literature at the end of his career as sort of leaving it behind. But sort of, I think my last takeaway in that chapter is that, in fact, he's always writing, right? He never leaves, um, he never leaves literature behind entirely. And, you know, this sort of mistaken binary between material culture and um, literary culture between art and writing is in some sense a false dichotomy, right? That they are always interrelated and that even towards the end of his life, when he's sort of um, embracing art history full, full scale, he's still very much interested in the way that uh, 
the, the kind of intersections between writing and portraiture or writing and art, art, um, and that, that they're always linked in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. This lens of collector really helps to break down that, that binary between um, material culture and, and literary culture. Um, moving to the conclusion, you conclude the book with some personal reflections that bring all of these conversations about collecting to the present day. So how do you see all of James and Benjamin's and Einstein's ideas about collecting speaking to us in our present moment? Yeah. So, you know, I think that material culture, especially right now, has a particular poignancy. Um, I mean, we talked about this already a bit with Benjamin and Einstein's collections, which are no longer extant, right, which are already um, have have been lost to us forever and are only accessible through indirect means, um, photographs or, or, you know, written accounts. Um, but I think especially now in our own moment where, you know, so much of our life and culture is shifting online, right? Um, and, you know, there is, I think, in especially in academia, I always wonder why it is that, you know, material culture, the study of material objects has a particular um, relevance now, right? You see all these kind of um, texts, or academic books, um, classes on material culture. And I do think there's something there that we want to hold on to, right? Even as so much becomes electronic, becomes virtual. And I'll never forget the first time I took my students to um, the archives after COVID. It was like, you know, a year and a half after we, um, you know, we it was like our first in-person class. And I said, okay, guys, you know, we're all going to sign the attestation. We're going to go into the library and look at the archives. Um, and they were just astonished. I think they hadn't, I mean, so many of us hadn't been in libraries for two years, but I think so many of them also had just become so used to accessing everything online. Um, and the experience of going into a library and sort of being able to see things, right? It's a very different perspective um, than you have when you're sort of searching online, you know, even in JSTOR and all these databases where you're kind of it's supposed to resemble a library, right? Or the kind of architecture. It is so different. Benjamin has this great quote where, you know, you're going into the library and you're looking for a book, but what you're really looking for is the book next to that book, right? <laughs> and that's the one that that's the one that contains the treasures, right? That you don't that you don't think about, right? So there's also there's all sorts of chance encounters that happen in libraries and in physical places that I think might are, are difficult to duplicate um, in the virtual sphere. Um, so I definitely think that there's still a very strong interest and relevance and the students loved it. They loved, they loved being able to touch the, you know, the, the actual paper as we were looking at, this was for a Frankfurt school seminar. We were looking at um, some of the letters um, and I was like, this is what aura means. You know, this is, this is the aura of the paper. This is the aura of the book, right? That you, the, the, the ability to touch and see it and sort of be awed by it and think, you know, think about the history and all the people that had sort of touched or been involved in the kind of the passage of this object down to us. Um, and I think that, you know, we have to hold on to that, right? Even in our own world. Um, but at the same time, I think... One of the questions I'm really interested in is how 
our own experiences online reshape our definitions of what collecting and hoarding are, right? You, um, I was recently looking at the first case study of digital hoarding, which came out in 2015, so very recent, right, where they first sort of defined digital hoarding and admitted, well, we don't really know what it is because the parameters of what we save online and, and our computers is, has not been established, right? This is a whole new world that we don't know. You know, we assume that everything online and that, you know, even with the way our desktop is organized, right? It's kind of almost an extension of the physical desktop, right? But is that actually the case, right? Is everything that we do in the physical world then just mirrored in our, you know, virtual space? No, I mean, I think that there's so much, um, that's different, right? And our even our ability to save, right? We can save whatever we want, right? And in fact, you know, Dropbox, Google Plus, all these, all these sites make so much money off of encouraging us to save more and more, right? Um, and it's kind of baked into the system of how they these these um, sites work, right? We don't have to think about where the collection actually is, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so much of hoarding, I think, has to do with storing information anyway. If you look at the definitions of hoarding, and that's why I sort of thought of quite uh, personally about it, because I, I'm a paper hoarder, but that actually turns out to be so much of hoarding has to do with storing information and the loss of information. So especially then we think about, you know, in the information age, isn't hoarding just a way of coming to terms with these overabundance of information, these, you know, I mean, hundreds of gigabytes of data we process every day, right? Isn't hoarding just a way of us dealing with that kind of deluge of information in some way? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. I mean, probably. Oh, um, well, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I would love to hear about what you're working on next um, and whether you have any new projects that are coming out of this book or something entirely new. Um, yeah, well, <clears throat> so I can't quite kick the collector out yet. It's <laughs> Well, this project is something I worked on for almost a decade, so I feel like it's, it's still with me. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely working. So most recently, I've, uh, I just had a seminar on digital hoarding um, and what it means and how to think about it. So it was sort of a joint, joint with um, uh, people from the tech community. And we started thinking quite seriously about, um, you know, how, how we archive data online and how, uh, how we save information and how definitions of physical hoarding might not necessarily apply to the online online world. Um, so that's definitely sort of one afterlife of my project. Um, but I think more sort of long-term, I'm thinking about um, a, a, uh, one of the sort of people I'm really interested in working on is a Swiss German author and traveler by the name of Annemarie Schwarzenbach, who is this sort of very um, interesting traveler figure uh, in the early 20th century, um, goes to Iran, uh, takes a Ford car with a female traveler, and they go from Geneva to Iran by car. And she dresses up as a man, partly um, to kind of ease the trip. 
but um, yeah, my my interest, and it's funny now that I'm thinking about the question of the the connections between maybe I am really interested in this question of travel and mobility, right? Because so many of the people I tend to work on are people who are itinerant, who are moving around um, and collecting experiences, memories, uh, records of of their travels. So maybe this is somehow still biographically connected back to my my youth. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's that's exciting. Um, well, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you um, so much for having me. It was wonderful to to talk to you and, and thank you for your questions. Absolutely. Uh, once again, my guest today is Annie Pfeiffer, co- uh, author of To the Collector, Belong the Spoils, Modernism and the Art of Appropriation, published by Cornell University Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to the Scholarly Communications Channel of New Books Network.